This afternoon, I'd like to continue to share share some reflections with you about this um, this arena of purification by knowledge and vision of the practice. You know, as using that image that Gil gave us, you know, we have now this one chariot with seven horses, and so it's just this sixth horse that I want to uh, continue to share with you about. Now we've we've gone from this seven chariots to this one chariot. It makes me have a little bit of compassion for the scholars that will be looking at this in a thousand years, having all their theories about how it changed and disagreeing and feeling like they're right about which one was first and which one was earlier. Probably always ends up like this, right? Somebody has some kind of whim. <laughs> and voila, we have one chariot. And uh, this is an important horse that's pulling our chariot that we're all in together, in this chariot together. Because it has so many different flavors of this practice that we can um, understand on, on so many different levels. And I'll be once again sharing with you just a little bit about this, this movement, the, the heart's movement towards equanimity. The heart's movement towards equanimity just in our retreat and also the heart's movement towards equanimity in terms of this one particular phase, this equanimity about for formations. And I wanna use a, just a little bit different frame to get a sense of of this movement, because I think it's uh, uh, really important for our lives and our practice. And it's this frame of, um, of love. And what I'd like to share with you is, uh, you could say it's a, a poem, more, more of a quote from the poet Shezwa uh, Miwosh. And it's, you could say it's about, I think it's called Falling in Love. Just a few things about Shizuwa uh, Miwosh. I don't know if many of you know of him. Uh, really a, an amazing poet. S saw himself as a Polish poet who was born in Lithuania and uh, actually worked for the resistance when uh, Poland was occupied um, by Nazi Germany, so hiding uh, Jewish people during that time. And then he finally made it over to the United States, and I think he was at uh, UC Berkeley before his death. And Simasini, another poet, described him in really striking terms. He said, he said, uh, described Miwosh as among those members of humankind who have had the ambiguous privilege of knowing and standing more reality than many the rest of us. Just the way he, the life and how he was situated, I think, gave him a, an interesting vantage point to what it is to be a human being. So he begins, he says, to fall in love, does it occur suddenly or gradually? If gradually, when is this moment already? I would fall in love with a plywood squirrel 
with a botanical atlas, with an oriole, with a ferret, with a marten in a picture, with the forest one sees to the right when riding in a cart. I would fall in love with a poem by a little-known poet, with human beings, and always the object of love was enveloped in erotic fantasy or was submitted, as in Stendhal, to a crystallization. So it is frightful to think of that object as it was naked among the th naked things and of the fairy tales about it one invents. Yes, I often, I was often in love with something or someone. Yet falling in love is not the same as being able to love. That is something different. I appreciate this distinction he's making and how he makes it. That falling in love in these ways is something very different than being able to love. Right? In, in, in falling in love, there are these fair, fairy tales that always one is inventing about it, a kind of whimsy that's there in falling in love. Being able to love is, is something so different than all of that. And what I probably most appreciate about this is how he says almost nothing about what it is to be able to love. And to me, that's so striking because so much of the world, probably of poetry and novels and movies and drama, both out there and in our minds, it's the dynamic of falling in love, but it's a dynamic that might miss and might not understand what it is to be able to love. And what I want to share as a frame is to, is to really um, express that, that for me, this practice, this practice of being with direct experience opens up the doorway of being able to love and to, to step out of some of the traps that happen when I fall in love in such unskillful ways. And for me, that is what the heart's release is, is it opens up that doorway to be able to love. How so? How is this path, this path of this chariot, describe a pathway towards being able to love and maybe stepping out of the delusions of falling in love? I think part of that is this pathway to equanimity. It's a pathway of disenchantment. 
decided to read over a little bit of the Vasudhimagga because it's something that speaks a lot about this. I haven't read a lot of it. And uh, Buddha goes is talking about this this equanimity about formations and the pathway there and talking about disenchantment. And he says, it's basically, he, he the analogy gives, paraphrasing a little bit, he says, it's kind of like being in a bad relationship. <laughs> so what happens in relationship is that I don't know if, I know I've been in these kinds of relationships. Maybe you can relate to this. Is I get into a relationship and um, I'm so, I get so deluded by my own enchantment with that other person. And really what I'm, what I'm really enchanted by is my ideas about the person and my hopes of what they're going to give me and what it's going to be like. And I know I've been in relationships where that excitement, I just kind of ride on that for a while. I'm so enchanted in a way. There can be so much fireworks that come after, out of that. And then you start to hit that wall. You know the wall I'm talking about? Where you realize that person in front of you is different than the person you were holding in your mind. <laughs> Usually it comes in the form of if only they were a little more like this, then this relationship would work. <laughs> if only a little more like that. And there's the hope, the hope for the perfect partner and the heartbreak that comes when it's not met. The realization they're not going to create the ideal world that I want. You ever experienced this? Or is this me? <laughs> <laughs> to me, it, it's such a, a, a good, good analogy of enchantment. But also the, the important process of disenchantment. Because it's the process of becoming disenchanted with the ideal world that I want, that I've pasted upon that person. And really being able to love that person is my ability to step out of that. To see that, that being able to love is very, very different than falling in love. Just using Miwosh's language here. It requires something radically different from me. I first need to become disenchanted by my fantasies with my disenchanted with those and to come into direct contact with that other person. I feel like retreat is really the same process. I get to see all the stories that my mind weaves about the world and my life and experience. And here we're giving you this invitation not to be enchanted by those, but to actually touch, to touch your experience. This is why there's been such an emphasis on direct experience. Not so much the hand, but the, the coolness, the vibration that you feel there. Not so much even the abdomen rising, oh, the feeling of expansion and contraction. It feeling smooth or bumpy or jagged, that movement. That more intimate connection. 
Because in those moments, it's not like I have some kind of concept that I'm placing upon even the breath. I get to meet the breath in an intimate way. Not through my stories, but through direct experience. We could say, it allows me to be able to love, to love the breath, to open the heart to that experience. Not to some idea about it, but to touch it. But it requires a kind of disenchantment with all the stories this mind tells or the dramas. I'd like to share with you another poem that I, I feel describes this process of disenchantment that happens on retreat, but with a little bit different language, with a little bit different perspective. And it's a poem by uh, Virginia Hamilton Adair. And when she was living, she lived in Claremont, California. And, and Claremont was, you could say, in some ways right below uh, the Zen Center, I, I trained at as a, as a monk at Mount Baldy Zen Center. So if you were in Claremont, you basically drive up into the San Gabriel Mountains. Up there was Mount Baldy Zen Center. And before I was there as a monk, uh, she would come up there to do session, to come do retreat. And not only that, she was a, a brilliant poet as well. And so this is a poem that she wrote about her experience, probably, on one of these session. And she entitled it Zazen. Zazen being meditation. Za is in, like in Zafu, sitting. Zen is Zen, meditation. <laughs> this is her description of coming to the retreat. She says, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under, a Saratoga, staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples. Nail kegs of anger. Carbons of abusive letters. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. Even the horse I never had. And the two casseroles left over from the diamond dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The, drunk, the trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one.
maybe you can relate. Have you noticed what you brought in your Saratoga trunk to the retreat that wasn't on the to bring list? <laughs> it's amazing. The stuff that we bring on retreat. And so relieving that no one notices. <laughs> Isn't that a relief that you can be on retreat and nobody sees what's in your Saratoga trunk? And I think the the list she gives is so, so well written, so precise about our minds. Nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, and this one, such a kicker, chemistry quizzes with Fs. It's amazing, you know, how we, our experiences in a place like high school and even the grades we get, how it can shape how I see myself and who I am. Of how I see myself of being smart or stupid, if I fit in or don't fit in. And there it is, lodged in the Saratoga trunk that we bring on retreat, continuing to shape something I call me. And this is something I, I spoke about last time that I appreciate she, she mentions. Even the horse I never had. Collecting the things that I didn't get in my life. Have you noticed such stories? These are the, the dramas, the novels that are written in our hearts and minds. They always get to be on the top 10, right? It's the, always these stories you could say, putting in a very general way of Miwosh's phrase, falling in love. The mind that's enchanted by the drama and stories. and we create me out of it. That's why th this process of a disenchantment is so important that we're doing here on, on retreat. It's this willingness to, to touch direct experience in the way we've been talking about it. And to see from that vantage point, the thoughts that are coming up, the stories, the story of hurt, the story of revenge or anger, the various stories of strong wanting, from the chocolate cake to the perfect relationship to just the simple lustful fantasy, the story of planning or the story of being the hero or the victim. And have you noticed over time, just just seeing it as planning, remembering, fantasizing again and again and again. Oh, there it is again, anger, sadness. Have you noticed at times that it loses its steam? It's just the same old story. <laughs> Allowing the heart to grow disenchanted with it. And this is why I think navigating the thinking mind on retreat is such an important aspect of this practice. Because it is, it is the field, this different relationship, just with the thinking process, allows disenchantment to arise. Allows 
this mind to be disenchanted with, with those stories that actually shape how I am in the world and who I am in the world and shape the world. Or in other words, I get to step out of the mere world of falling in love and I get to open up the gateway to be able to love in this life. And I think that's what makes this, me, for me, this path so powerful. Do I want to fall in love with a fantasy? Or what do I want to be here for the activity of living and connecting with others? And from that arises what Gil was talking about as this biological imperative, this, what's called this desire for deliverance. Boy, I so want to be disenchanted with my ideal world that I'm lost in. I want to step out of it to touch, to touch experience. Zen, they'd say this, to touch this quality of spiritual intimacy. And that does give rise to this wholesome longing, dhamma chanda, this, this desire, this desire, this dhamma desire. The Zen poet Ryokan expresses this well, this longing, as he's looking at this cage, this, this, these caged birds. And he says this to them. He writes this po po poem towards these caged birds. And he writes, time and again, you too, you too must long for your old nests deep in the mountain. That longing, the longing for home, the longing to be able to love rather than to be lost in some fantasy. And I think it's this, this process of seeing these stories, these patterns again and again and again, and allowing for a different relationship, the relationship of disenchantment that allows equanimity to start to blossom, to take hold. And I think it's because of that repetition that allows for a different relationship. So equanimity, this, this quality of mind that comes out of this desire for deliverance, this disenchantment. 
I want to share a little bit about these qualities that you might relate to. And, and just to point out that this quality of equanimity, it might just come in a few moments of your practice. You might be sitting here, the mind's racing a lot, but then there's, there's a kind of okayness with experience. Or there's an okayness with a pain in the knee that it has this quality of equanimity towards it. A real okayness of simply being with the breath. To a much stronger and stronger flavors of, of equanimity, but really the, the, the same basis of it, just in different degrees. And one of the feeling senses of it, I think, is a quality of stability. It, but a responsive stability, not a dead stability. Like the image that, that I find so helpful, so I stole it from one of my colleagues, Greg Scharf, and I'm really appreciative, grateful to him for this. And he gives the image of um, how ballast in a ship works, which I think is so perfect. Because so, I like also that ballast is, is weighty. I think, they, I think a lot of times they used to use lead or some kind of heavy material at the, at the bottom of the ship. And then that ballast allows a ship to be in waves and always be continually riding itself within those waves. So it's always responsive in a way that it stays upright because of how the ballast is in relationship to those waves. And if you imagine right now that, that fluid kind of movement of a ship because of the ballast, I think that gives me a feeling sense of equanimity. It's heavy and it's stable, but it's responsive, it's, it's malleable in that way. And the Buddha speaks to this when, it, when he distinguishes in one discourse between what he calls household equanimity and the equanimity of a practitioner. That household equanimity is really just merely being blind to experience. And through that bi blindness, it looks like there's a, there, there's a, a okayness, but it's just because one's not touching, <laughs> touching experience. Whereas the, the, the equanimity of a practitioner comes from seeing clearly a clarity of vision about this moment. And really being able to see that clearly with stability gives a whole different feeling sense of that equanimity. Just to expand this, I think the, the kind of the definition scheme that's used in the Vasudhimagga is really helpful when, you know, in the Vasudhimagga with some of these qualities of heart and mind, they give the near enemy and the far enemy, the far enemy being the opposite of whatever quality is being defined. So the far enemy of, of equanimity or the far enemies is grasping and aversion. It's the reactivity. And the near enemy being this household equanimity. It's the near enemy is what we often get equanimity confused with, with which is indifference. I think this is where a lot of the confusion comes, comes from is that there can be the sense that equanimity equals indifference. But not so, because that isn't really the way the ballast of a ship works. It doesn't take into, in, into account this responsiveness. It reminds me of a... Um, and, and I want to say, just outwardly, we can really uh, confuse these both. I remember I was at a trauma con conference, and there was an individual there who... Um, 
They were a meditator, and they had been labeled as very calm and peaceful and steady and stable. It was just that they were extremely disconnected. And and getting more of a sense of the vigil, you, 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 there was a sense of the deep mental anguish that was underneath that, that gave rise to that disconnection. Equanimity is, is different. There's a, a quality of connection with experience, not disconnection. And on more, a more subtle level, just in terms of retreat practice, you might notice, you know, there's times where, where I can feel spaced out and tired and good, but completely clueless to what's going on. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, especially at the beginning of retreat, you know those, those, those sits that you have where you sit down and it's like you wake up at the at the end of the sit and you feel so good, but you have no idea what happened for like the last half hour. It's just like just a world of darkness, but you feel good. It's just based on disconnection rather than being present. Whereas equanimity has a clarity to it. One of the things that will come with it is that it that it's it's combined, it's coupled together with very strong mindfulness. And usually at quite a bit of samadhi. So how to notice this. Sometimes, really at any time in the practice, I think it, it can be very helpful uh, of, can you notice any flavors of okayness in your practice? And this is where it's so wonderful to continue, continue to check in of, with the attitude of the mind, of how it's relating to experience. It might be simply being with the breath and then you check in with the attitude of the mind and you realize, oh, the mind's just completely okay with the breath, interesting. Or the, the wandering mind, the mind lost in thought, it just has a momentum to it and there's a, there's a labeling thinking and there's a recognition in the label of, th of the thinking that there's an okayness to this. There's an acknowledgement that there's a, a quality of lost in thought and thinking, and you come back to the breath, but it's like, that's just the mind. And it's so easy to skip over because one of the flavors of equanimity is it has a, a strong neut neutrality to it. It has a neutral Vedana quality to it. So we can look over it, but it's really important to to bookmark that, to allow the mind to take that in so it starts to get reinforced. Where are you noticing moments of okayness in your practice? They're not going to be grand and dramatic often, but they're going to be there. Checking that out, savoring it, that, that's a wholesome quality of mind, equanimity. Even if it's brief. And I found, uh, just to, to kind of tie it into our lives, I found it helpful to continue to notice equanimity because what I'm doing is I'm creating an associative link in my mind with a very important quality of mind and heart for my life. And when I get to know that and befriend it, I feel like it appears for me more, especially in my life out there when I'm faced with struggles. 
And, and, and to me, that's one of the, the, the primary qualities that I want for this heart. I see it so important for the world that we live in, in these days, and it's what I aspire to. And often, you know, sometimes in my practice, also on retreat, I bring to mind people that, that embody that because I want to be inspired in that, that this quality of equanimity. I mean, I think of uh, somebody like W.B. Du Bois. You know, the, he co-founded the NAACP. He spent his life speaking out against discrimination, about speaking against against thing like the things like the Jim Crow laws. Really, up until you know, ninety-five, when he was ninety-five years old. And what's so amazing to me was his endurance and persistence. And it was actually only after a year after he died that the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. And much of what he fought for was all about that. To live a life with that kind of equanimity and perseverance. So I think it's so important to see that in our practice and to cultivate it, allow space for this. Where are the places where you can allow a little bit more equanimity towards your experience? To carry something like that forward in our world. And it's true, at times, this equanimity can be very, very strong. This is this equanimity about formations where the mind is extremely clear, the, the mindfulness has a, a vibrancy, a sharpness to it. There can be a smoothness to the practice. A lot of times there's more momentum in the practice. There's a feel like a, 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 not a need to, to sleep as much. And the mind just isn't perturbed by, by the comings and goings of experience. So this too is important to open up to. And it's here in this kind of stability of mind that, that, the, that I think our hearts and minds can really have these tastes of release, of letting go, of finding, in the words of Ryokan, our, our, our old nest in the forest, our true home of release. And that's the image that's given also in the Vasudhi Magga. So in the Vasudhi Magga, they give this image that in, when, the, when the heart and mind can really rest in equanimity, they liken it to uh, what's called a land-finding crow. So on, a, a, on a sail ships back in those days, they would, have, they would have a crow, a bird with them as they were uh, sailing. And then what they would do is they would release the bird and they would watch the bird fly in a different direction uh, because if the bird were to find land, then it would not come back. But if it couldn't find the land, then it would, would fly back to the boat. So it was this process of the, of the crow seeking, seeking its home on the land. And then, and then if the, the, the crow didn't come back, it was just allowing the ship, allowing the heart to follow that which knows where our true home is.
Yeah, so may our our hearts start to really get tastes of equanimity on this retreat. Really in this frame so that so that we're we're able to love rather than merely fall in love in a way that, that brings liberation to our hearts and to this world. So let's just sit for a moment here. <laughs> 